Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, sponsored by Amazon. Today is Friday, January 29th. GameStock stock is up, Coinbase's trading platform went down for a bit today, and we're focused on the possible arrival of two new vaccines. Any American fortunate enough to be getting a COVID-19 vaccine right now, outside of clinical trials, is getting one made by either Moderna or by Pfizer, since those are the only two that have applied for and received FDA approval. But more might be on the way. On Thursday night, Maryland-based Novavax released preliminary clinical results from a 15,000-person study in the UK, showing its vaccine was nearly 90% effective. It also disclosed that a study in South Africa proved 49% effective, suggesting that the Novavax drug struggles against one of the new and more dangerous COVID-19 variants. Then, this morning, Johnson & Johnson reported that its vaccine is 72% effective against the original coronavirus and even more effective at preventing serious disease and hospitalization, although it too lost efficacy when tested in South Africa. And remember, J&J is a single-dose vaccine that needn't be stored at ultra-cold temperatures. Two things to think about. First, these results are very, very good news. Neither the Novavax or J&J vaccine is quite as top-line effective as Moderna or Pfizer's, but they are still a lot better than the alternative, which is no vaccine at all. Two, these results also suggest that we're in a race to stop the current pandemic before the variants spread too far and wide as they're much harder to protect against. So we want to dig into what the Novavax and J&J news really means with Dr. Tom Frieden, former head of the CDC under President Obama. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Dr. Tom Frieden, former CDC director under President Obama. So doctor, two big pieces of news this morning from two different companies. So let's start with Novavax. When you looked at the data they just released, what does it tell us about efficacy against the most common strain of COVID-19? Well, it works pretty well. And for all of these, I'm waiting for more data. I'd really like to see numbers, sample size, attack rates, the kind of data that we saw from Pfizer and Moderna when they submitted the EUA applications to the Food and Drug Administration. That was really helpful because I could really understand what the data showed. But really, the striking finding on Novavax were two. One, works pretty well against what we call wild type type of virus. And second, doesn't work as well against the South African variant, but still works pretty well there. Am I right in saying of the of kind of the big four, call them, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, now Novavax, NJ&J, which we'll get to in a minute. This seems to be the first one that does seem to struggle more against that variant, or significantly more. Yes. Um, really, the fact is that we were all very worried that these variants would be what we, what's called vaccine escape variants. But so far, the data is pretty reassuring for the first two, at least. Uh, for Novavax, that's a pretty big difference. And to me, I think we have to step back and say, look, the importance of these individual variants is that they are telling us something. They're telling us that this virus is a really tough enemy to fight, and it's going to figure out ways to get around our defenses, so we better fight smarter. When you say fight smarter, what does that really mean? Because it seems, and tell me if you agree with this, that we are really maybe facing two simultaneous but different pandemics at this point. I think fight smarter means a few things. First, while 
Vaccination is scaling up. We need to double down on protection protocols, mask up and reduce avoidable indoor contacts with anyone outside of your family. So double down on protection while we scale up vaccines. Second, get that vaccine scale up done really well. And third, understand that as vaccine scales up, cases come down, we're going to have to do a much better job at testing, isolation, quarantine, contact trace. Because any uncontrolled spread anywhere gives our enemy, the virus, the opportunity to evolve and put selective pressure for strains that can escape this vaccine, perhaps, or even natural immunity. You know, we obviously, in the early days of the pandemic, it took us a while to kind of get to kind of these universal safety protocols. You said, you know, masking up uh, six feet or more of social distance and not doing stuff indoors. I wonder, though, given this variant, do we really know yet if the protocols that we developed for, as you said, the wild strain really work for this? This is supposed to be more highly transmissible. Does that mean that you and I sitting outside, you know, six feet apart with a mask is effective or effective enough? The good news is that if you look at the epidemic curve in the UK and Ireland, when they distanced more and masked up more, the cases came right down. So this is not some super virus that uh, beams itself through your mask. On the other hand, a lot of us are concerned that because we started with using cloth masks because they were accessible, that probably is fine for what's called source control. That prevents you, if you're infected, from infecting me pretty well. But how well a cloth masks might protect me from getting infected by you if you're not wearing a mask, not nearly as well as a surgical or procedure mask and a surgical mask not nearly as well as an N95. So upping our game may mean wearing better masks. When I ask about the kind of two pandemics, I guess maybe what I mean is, do you believe there's a risk, at least in the United States, of this new variant, either the South African variant or some other variant, overtaking the original one in terms of infections? Oh, it's very likely that uh, more infectious variants will replace the less infectious variants. That's how evolution works. And I think we're getting a little too obsessed with the UK or South, South African variant. Frankly, we've got US variants that are growing. And part of this is because the virus is changing uh, fairly fast. Part of this is because we have new tools that we can see the genome in real time that we couldn't see before. So we're understanding the evolution of a genome more. Let me ask uh, about Johnson & Johnson, which is the other, you know, other drug company that came out with uh, vaccine data in the last 24 hours. What does it really tell you, particularly in terms of its efficacy in preventing serious diseases and hospitalizations? Well, first off, I think the headline here is wrong. The big news about a single-dose J&J vaccine is that it's probably just as good as a single-dose mRNA vaccine. Which some of the mRNA makers, by the way, did not think was going to be the case. Well, the fact is you've got vaccines that are exceeding our highest hopes for how good vaccines would be. Now, what a two-dose J&J series will be, I don't know. It has a lot of advantages. Easier to store, easier to make. Company has a lot of experience with vaccines. So I think uh, it's definitely another tool that we have to fight the virus. Given what J&J reported in terms of kind of what it prevents, you know, right now with two vaccines, if you're one of the people fortunate enough to be eligible and able to get an appointment to get a vaccine, you get whatever they've got, right? You know, they give you whatever, you know, they happen to have. Are we going to get to a point where state and local health authorities are going to say this group of people, because of these conditions or their age or some other demographic or medical, should get the J&J, &J, this group should get Pfizer, this group should get Moderna, et cetera? Are we going to get to that point? Is there a reason to think we should? 
We may be, but these are really tough issues. If you think about influenza vaccination, there was a while that we recommended one type of vaccine over the others. And then the next year came around and that vaccine didn't work at all. So right now, I would say, let's see what the FDA says. Look at all of the data as it comes out. We've got two great vaccines in this country with Moderna. We've got really promising data from uh, J&J. We've got uh, data that we're still waiting to see all of from the AstraZeneca vaccine. So we've got more and more tools. But remember that vaccination, although it's our best tool, isn't going to end the pandemic. And it's not going to do it quickly either. You brought up AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca seemed ready to go after Pfizer and Moderna, but you know, a while ago, it's being used in the UK. It's being jabbed into arms. Operation Warp Speed did help fund its development. I understand they had to deal with the British government before the US government for distribution, but is there an explanation to you why they haven't at least gone for FDA approval yet? Um, to be blunt, AstraZeneca has limited experience with vaccines. And I haven't seen all of the details of their clinical trial, but it doesn't appear that it's going to give us the answers we need. They also have this very strange data about having given a half dose to some people, and then that was just as effective, but it was only in people under the age of 55. And now it turns out that the second dose was delayed by a longer time in those people. So there are so many things that we don't know the answers to. And one thing that I wish I knew the answer to is, is the AstraZeneca team studying different dose regimens so that, yeah, it may take us six months to learn, but let's start now. Moderna, I believe, has talked about possibly, or not possibly, about trying to develop a booster for uh, the South African strain. So would that mean the people who get the Moderna vaccine, they get their first shot, then a few weeks later, they get their second shot, are now going to have to get a third shot, which I guess just thinking about the difficulties we are having logistically in vaccinating so many people, you would now be bringing people in for a third time. It would seem to put even more stress on an already strained system. Well, this is just a theory. There's no point in thinking much about at this point. The fact is that the levels of protection are so high with the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines that they can overwhelm some of the changes that the virus can throw at us. If we had a very different virus, then the question is, would you just give an additional Moderna? Or with the mRNA vaccines, could you tweak the recipe some, and within you know a month, three months, have a new vaccine that you can repurpose and quickly go after the new variant. Doctor, final question for you is a policy question. Most teachers in the United States have not yet been vaccinated, but in many states, they are kind of more toward the top of the list than, say, as a general population. If teachers are able to be vaccinated, both shots actually vaccinated, but most of their students are not because we don't have vaccines approved for people under 16, do you believe that classrooms should reopen before there is a vaccine for those kids? Well, first off, I think classrooms should stay open as long as possible and reopen as soon as possible. In-person learning is enormously important. We've shown time and time again that schools can be operated safely with basic safety precautions. You do have to mask. You do have to ventilate and distance to the extent you can, not perfectly. But there's very little spread in schools. You have to close the teacher break rooms because the spread that's been there, you have to look at the extracurricular activities. It isn't the academic setting where the virus is spreading overwhelmingly. So we need our kids back in schools and getting teachers vaccinated soon will help do that. But I wouldn't wait for teacher vaccination. Our kids need learning today. Dr. Tom Frieden, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome back. What we're watching today is Robin Hood which still doesn't have a consistent explanation for why it yesterday halted trading of around a dozen stocks, including GameStop, AMC Entertainment, and Nokia. 
The move, which Robinhood has since reversed, angered both politicians and Robinhood users. And company CEO Vlad Tenev last night on CNBC sought to tamp down on speculation that he'd bended to the will of Wall Street hedge fund clients. Instead, he said the decision was a simple matter of rising capital requirements, including depository requirements, because trading volume hit record highs. In other words, more shares trade, the more money that Robinhood had to effectively put aside. And that makes sense, except that in the same breath, Tenev said that Robinhood didn't have any liquidity problems. In other words, it had enough cash. So either Robinhood stopped the trades because it didn't have enough money, or it did have enough money and it stopped the trades for some other reason. In the meantime, GameStop shares are soaring again today. We're also watching a New York Times report that Facebook plans to launch a newsletter subscription service piling on the Substack trend just after Twitter and Forbes magazine did the same. One thing you can't say about Facebook is that it's unwilling to try out someone else's ideas. And finally, we are watching Pizza Hut, which says it's about to begin selling Detroit-style pizza, which begs the question, what the hell is Detroit-style pizza? Well, thanks to Google, apparently it's rectangular, kind of like the old Pizza Hut Bigfoot pizza, cooked in a pan with sauce on top rather than beneath the cheese. So take that, Chicago. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. It's my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven. Have a great national corn chip day. You can crumble those and put those on top of Detroit-style pizza. And we'll be back Monday with another Axios Recap.